This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And nowadays, we're so used to our gadgets sending signals to and from space with satellite TV and GPS navigation that we probably don't even think about just how wondrous space exploration really is and how there have been tragedies on that road of discovery. On this day in history in 1986, we lost the Space Shuttle Challenger. The crew of seven included schoolteacher Krista McAuliffe from Concord, New Hampshire. That very same evening, President Ronald Reagan was supposed to deliver the State of the Union Address to Congress. Seeing our nation in shock, he instead delivered these 648 words direct to our living rooms. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd planned to speak to you tonight to report on the State of the Union. But the events of earlier today have led me to change those plans. Today is a day for mourning and remembering. Nancy and I are pained to the core by the tragedy of the Shuttle Challenger. We know we share this pain with all of the people of our country. This is truly a national loss. Nineteen years ago, almost to the day, we lost three astronauts in a terrible accident on the ground. But we've never lost an astronaut in flight. We've never had a tragedy like this. And perhaps we've forgotten the courage it took for the crew of the shuttle. But they, the Challenger 7, were aware of the dangers, but overcame them and did their jobs brilliantly. We mourn seven heroes. Michael Smith, Dick Scobie, Judith Resnick, Ronald McNair, Ellison Onizuka, Gregory Jarvis, and Krista McAuliffe. We mourn their loss as a nation together. The families of the seven, we cannot bear as you do the full impact of this tragedy. But we feel the loss and we're thinking about you so very much. Your loved ones were daring and brave and they had that special grace, that special spirit that says, give me a challenge and I'll meet it with joy. They had a hunger to explore the universe and discover its truths. They wished to serve, and they did. They served all of us. We've grown used to wonders in this century. It's hard to dazzle us. But for 25 years, the United States space program has been doing just that. We've grown used to the idea of space, and perhaps we forget that we've only just begun. We're still pioneers. They, the members of the Challenger crew, were pioneers. And I want to say something to the school children of America who were watching the live coverage of the shuttle's takeoff. I know it's hard to understand, but sometimes painful things like this happen. It's all part of the process of exploration and discovery. It's all part of taking a chance and expanding man's horizons. The future doesn't belong to the faint-hearted. It belongs to the brave. The Challenger crew was pulling us into the future, and we'll continue to follow them. I've always had great faith in and respect for our space program, and what happened today does nothing to diminish it. We don't hide our space program. We don't keep secrets and cover things up. We do it all up front and in public. That's the way freedom is, and we wouldn't change it for a minute. We'll continue our quest in space. There will be more shuttle flights and more shuttle crews, and yes, more volunteers, more civilians, more teachers in space. Nothing ends here. Our hopes and our journeys continue. I want to add that I wish I could talk to every man and woman who works for NASA or who worked on this mission and tell them 
Your dedication and professionalism have moved and impressed us for decades, and we know of your anguish. We share it. There's a coincidence today. On this day, 390 years ago, the great explorer Sir Francis Drake died aboard ship off the coast of Panama. In his lifetime, the great frontiers were the oceans, and a historian later said he lived by the sea, died on it, and was buried in it. Well, today, we can say of the Challenger crew, their dedication was, like Drake's, complete. The crew of the Space Shuttle Challenger honored us for the manner in which they lived their lives. We will never forget them, nor the last time we saw them, this morning, as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye and slipped the surly bonds of Earth to touch the face of God. Thank you. A few days later, the President and First Lady flew to Houston for memorial service. They sat in between two of the astronauts' widows, and Reagan later recalled, quote, I found it difficult to say anything. All we could do was hug the families and try to hold back the tears. By the time he got up before 10,000 NASA employees, guests, and the families of the astronauts, Reagan found his voice again. After eulogizing each extraordinary member of the crew, he turned to their families and he said these words. The sacrifice of your loved ones has stirred the soul of our nation. And through the pain, our hearts have been opened to a profound truth. The future is not free. The story of all human progress is one of a struggle against all odds. We learned again that this America which Abraham Lincoln called the last best hope of man on earth, was built on heroism and noble sacrifice. It was built by men and women like our seven star voyagers, who answered a call beyond duty, who gave more than was expected or required, and who gave it little thought of worldly reward. We think back to the pioneers of an earlier century, the sturdy souls who took their families and their belongings and set out into the frontier of the American West. Often they met with terrible hardship. Along the Oregon Trail you can still see the grave markers of those who fell on the way. But grief only steeled them to the journey ahead. Today, the frontier is space and the boundaries of human knowledge. Sometimes when we reach for the stars, we fall short. But we must pick ourselves up again and press on, despite the pain. Our nation is indeed fortunate that we can still draw on immense reservoirs of courage, character, and fortitude. That we're still blessed with heroes like those of the Space Shuttle Challenger. And this all happened on this day in history in 1986. And our This Days in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Go to hillsdale.edu to sign up for their great and free online courses. The story of the Challenger, here on Our American Stories.
Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And this next story comes to us from John Elfner. And he's a U.S. history teacher at Homewood Flossmoor High School, and that's in the south suburbs of Chicago. John is beginning his 20th year of teaching high school students, and that's no duck walk, folks, if you've raised them, if you've been around them, but it's also a joy. And today, he enlightens the rest of us. Friday night, we're in the south suburbs of Chicago. We're at a high school football game. The stands are packed, the students and fans are excited for the opening kickoff, and the marching band is playing the school's fight song. On the field is Coach Ted Venegas. Hey, Coach, who's your favorite president? Teddy Roosevelt's my favorite president because he saved football. That may seem like an odd claim, but Venegas is not just a coach. He's also a U.S. history teacher, and he knows the intimate connection between Teddy Roosevelt and football. You see, the modern game of football is nothing like the game in the early 1900s. The early game of football is a lot more like violent rugby than the game that we know today. You can see some of the early games on film, including what claims to be the first recorded game between Princeton and Yale. It's not much to look at. Just 11 burly guys wearing very little protective equipment slamming into each other on the line. On most plays, the ball carrier runs into the scrum, is attacked by the defense, which itself is being mauled by big offensive linemen, typically ending up in a very large pile of very large young men. Presuming no one is maimed on the play, all 22 players get up, no huddle, line up again, and set, hike, on to the next play. Historian Brian Ingracia, author of the book The Rise of the Gridiron University, Higher Education's Uneasy Alliance with Big-Time Football, talks about the early game of football. College athletes have figured out ways to win very, very efficiently, but also in ways that are very kind of boring and also very potentially dangerous. So you've got the flying wedge, which is a play where you've got, uh, you know, one player with a number of other players in front of him running down the field. And this can be very, very dangerous. And they used to refer to this kind of football for the forward pass as kind of five yards in a cloud of dust. And passing the ball was illegal. Every play was a running play. On most plays, the ball carrier ran straight through the middle of the line. Players and coaches began to figure out more effective ways to physically move bodies around to get their ball carrier through that line. But with limited rules and little regard for safety, the game got really rough. There's a very famous case in 1897 where a University of Georgia player named Richard Vaughn Gammon, he actually died in a game played in Atlanta between the University of Georgia and the University of Virginia. And there's a moment in 1897 where the state of Georgia came very, very close actually to outlawing college football. Not surprisingly, this collision of 22 players, play after play, led to frequent injuries, some of them fatal. Young men are dying on the field. Oftentimes when they are, it's traumatic brain injuries, concussions, spinal injuries. Sometimes they're, they die immediately on the field. Sometimes they might get injured and they might not die for another week or two weeks. There's this growing concern around the country that this game has become very violent and is killing these young men. And over the next decade, things got worse. In 1905 alone, 18 high school and college football players died while playing the game. Dozens of others were severely injured, and the rest were just happy to escape with their lives. The violence of the game was unacceptable. With America's young men dying and being maimed on the field, football became something that major universities could no longer tolerate or sponsor. Both Yale and Harvard were considering canceling their programs. But then an unlikely savior stepped in, President Teddy Roosevelt. Roosevelt was a fan of football. He saw it as a way to season young men. Roosevelt had wanted to play when he was a Harvard man, but his asthma kept him from being involved. He said of football, 
as in a football game. The principle to follow is, hit the line hard. Don't foul and don't shirk, but hit the line hard. His toughness is legendary. Teddy popularized the term, the strenuous life. He describes what he meant by that in an 1899 speech. I wish to preach not the doctrine of ignoble ease, but the doctrine of the strenuous life, the life of toil and effort, of labor and strife. I preach to you then, my countrymen, that our country calls not for the life of ease, but for the life of strenuous endeavor. And this was more than just talk. The stories of T.R. living the strenuous life are nearly endless, but here are a few of my favorites. First, he maintained a strict physical regimen, going so far as to box with a sparring partner in the White House. He referred to boxing as a condensed way to fit exercise into his busy schedule. And T.R. was no boxing hack. He had boxed during college on Harvard's intramural boxing squad. But his pursuit of boxing into his 50s ultimately cost him. In one sparring session, he sustained an injury to his left eye and lost his vision in that eye permanently. Accordingly, I thought it better to acknowledge that I had become an elderly man and would have to stop boxing. I then took up jujitsu for a few years. A second presidential physical pastime Roosevelt enjoyed was called single stick. It is what it sounds like. Two opponents armed with a single stick whack each other with that single stick. Roosevelt and his good friend, Major General Leonard Wood, regularly engaged in this practice. In a nod to the danger of the game, they would wrap pillows around themselves for protection, but that didn't always do the trick. One time, Roosevelt got whacked in the head by General Wood's stick and suffered a large bump in a black eye. No problem for Roosevelt, it was merely evidence of his living the strenuous life. By the way, care to guess which sport Wood played in college? Yup, football. But I saved the best story for last, and I'm going to let another figure that knows a lot about leadership in sports, just like Roosevelt, tell the story. Pat Williams is the vice president of the Orlando Magic, and has written a book on leadership called 21 Great Leaders. He tells my favorite story about TR. Teddy Roosevelt was getting ready to go over to the big auditorium to deliver a speech when he was running for president again in the Bull Moose Party. And when he came out to get in the car, uh, a man who had been trailing him for weeks and months finally caught up with him and fired a shot right into his chest. Well, Roosevelt's speech was in his uh, vest pocket, uh, along with his glasses case, and it, it dulled the blow of the bullet. And they were ro- wanting to rush him to the hospital. Roosevelt says, Take me to the auditorium! And the next thing you know, Roosevelt is standing up at the podium telling the audience exactly what just happened. I've just been shot. The bullet is in me now, so I cannot make a very long speech, but I will try my best. The crowd thought he was joking, but then Roosevelt pulled back his jacket to reveal the blood all over his white shirt. And then he exclaimed, It takes more than that to kill a bull moose. When he telegrammed his wife to assure her that he was okay, he described the bullet wound as, Trivial. Trivial? Are any bullet wounds trivial? Well, maybe when you're Teddy Roosevelt living this strenuous life, some of them are. So what does all this have to do with football? Roosevelt saw football as a way to develop young men in this strenuous life. I believe in rough games and in rough, manly sports. I do not feel any particular sympathy for the person who gets battered about a good deal, so long as it is not fatal. But not everyone agreed. By 1905, the Prohibition movement was gaining momentum. 
No, not the prohibition of alcohol, the prohibition of football. John J. Miller, author of the book The Big Scrum, How Teddy Roosevelt Saved Football, talks about this movement. A lot of people are becoming concerned about their brutality and violence of the sport. They're looking at this and they're, they're, they're saying this is, this is unacceptable in advanced societies like our own. Gladiatorial combat in the Roman amphitheater. And we are not barbarians in 20th century America. Therefore, we should banish football. Newspapers start to write articles about the evils of football. And a Cincinnati newspaper goes so far as to publish a cartoon titled The Grim Reaper Smiles on the Goalpost, which depicts the angel of death reclining on the crossbar overlooking a pile of bodies on the field. The people who believed this created a social and political movement. They were led by the president of Harvard University, Charles W. Eliot, uh, but others joined this movement as well. Lots of people in higher education were involved. Newspapers were involved. Muckraking journalists were involved. And this movement is no idle threat. Three major programs, Columbia, Duke, and Northwestern, cancel their program. Harvard is on the verge of doing the same, with Harvard's president referring to the game as more brutalizing than prize fighting, cockfighting, or bullfighting. Even Roosevelt's own Secretary of War, William Howard Taft, a future president, threatens to dismiss any West Point football players if they engage in too much violence on the football field. Some schools even replace football with rugby because rugby was less brutal. So football is facing a genuine crisis of extinction. Could football survive the growing movement to ban the sport? And when we come back, we'll find out the answer to that question. And we're listening to one of our contributors. And he's a U.S. history teacher at Homewood Flossmore High School in the south suburb of Chicago. And that's John Elfner doing the storytelling. When we come back, Roosevelt saves football. More of that story here on Our American Stories. And by the way, to sign up for all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Give us your email address and we'll send you our five best stories each week. Our newsletter, our weekly newsletter. Again, that's OurAmericanNetwork.org. More on Teddy Roosevelt and football with John Elfner after these messages. And this is Our American Stories, and we return to John Elfner and the improbable story of a president and the survival of one of our great national sports. So in 1905, just as Roosevelt was beginning his second term, he saw that football was facing a truly existential crisis. Major schools had already canceled their programs, and the Ivy Leagues, most notably Harvard, were considering canceling their programs. I just want to take a moment to emphasize how important it is that the president of Harvard, Charles Eliot, wanted to cancel his football program. It may be hard to imagine today, but Harvard was once the premier college football program in the country. It was also one of the first, playing its inaugural game in 1873. They won the national championship in 1890, 1898, and again in 1899. 
and Harvard routinely saw their players named as first-team All-American selections. Because professional football was yet to be well-established, the college game received enormous national attention, and Harvard was at the top of that list. When Harvard and Yale played each year, it was simply known as the game. And just two years earlier, Harvard had built a massive stadium at the cost of $200,000. In today's money, that would be about $5 million. Despite that enormous expense, the president of Harvard was eager to ban the game because of its brutality. And if Harvard, one of the oldest and most successful programs in the nation, was to banish its program, many schools would follow, perhaps leading to the end of football entirely. But this is a problem for Roosevelt. Roosevelt believed that college football, brutal as it was, provided a training ground for our nation's young men. John J. Miller explains. It's not merely entertaining, but he thinks it's a positive social good because he thinks sports turn boys into men. They teach things that you cannot learn in classrooms or from books. They teach that when you get knocked down, you should stand back up. They teach you how to win with dignity, how to lose with grace, how to work with teammates, how to take orders from a coach. They teach you so many things that you cannot learn in other ways. Roosevelt firmly believed that developing these qualities as young men would serve these men if they were ever called to war. Pat Williams explains. Truly, I think he saw football as a battle without guns, but I think he also saw that it developed leaders, that it it developed physical and mental toughness in young men. And Roosevelt knew more than a little about battle. In 1898, when the Spanish-American War broke out in Cuba, Roosevelt was serving as assistant secretary to the Navy, perhaps the safest government post in all of Washington, D.C. But Roosevelt didn't want to be in Washington during the war. He quit his cushy post and founded, funded, and recruited his own military unit called the Rough Riders. He craved action, and he wanted to be in the middle of the action. And so when the Spanish-American War broke out, there was nothing that was going to stop T.R. from getting involved. Uh, He raised a troop of men, you know, who he had known for years, some of them from his time out west. And he put this group together, and uh, down they went to Cuba. And uh, he was part of that invasion up to... San Juan Hill and was in the middle of the action. There were real bullets being fired, and TR was right in the middle of it. Any guesses on what past experience many of those Rough Riders had that qualified them for service in the eyes of Roosevelt? That's right, football. So Roosevelt had experienced war, and by living the strenuous life before his time with the Rough Riders, he was ready for it. But how would America's young men be prepared for the next war? Roosevelt believed football was a place where the skills needed in war, teamwork, leadership, overcoming obstacles, and even conquering territory could be developed. So here's Roosevelt's challenge. He loves the idea of the strenuous life, not only for himself, but for young men. Football is a part of that and something he supports. But many major universities are getting ready to drop their programs, and his own son had just had his nose broken in a game. What should he do? Well, in true Rooseveltian fashion, T.R. used his bully pulpit to call the presidents and coaches of the Ivy League schools together to change the rules. Here again is Brian Ingracia. In October of 1905, he calls in Walter Camp, as well as a number of other individuals associated with Harvard and Yale and Princeton. They show up at the White House, they meet for about two hours, and they essentially come out there with an agreement. We are going to do something to clean up football. So that's it, right? Roosevelt saved football. Wrong. 
After the meeting, nothing happened until a pair of highly publicized tragedies occurred on the football field. Right around Thanksgiving, there are two really important games. There's a game between New York University and Union College in which one of the players for Union College, Harold Moore, actually dies from injuries sustained within the game. And on the same day, there's there's a broken nose on a late tackle in the Harvard-Yale game. And it's kind of those two events on the same day that really, really push university leaders when they say, we need to do something about this. And they do. They gather together and start to make major rule changes. And these are the same men that Roosevelt gathered at the White House just months earlier who initially didn't want to make those changes. Roosevelt went so far as to send representatives to the meeting to oversee those changes. The single most important rule change of 1906 was the legalization of the forward pass. The reason why they decided to legalize the forward pass, I think it's going to be safer. They said it's going to open up the field of play. Players are going to be spread out more on the field than they currently are. There's going to be fewer bad tackles. And it worked. Fatalities reduced year after year and made the game safer for the players and also made the game more exciting. Deaths on the field started to drop. The claims of gladiatorial brutality made by the prohibition of football movement, were undercut by many of the rule changes. Not only is the forward pass added, but other rules are introduced to make the game less brutal. They made the personal foul a heavily penalized infraction. They created uh, a neutral zone at the line of scrimmage. And they were all done with the idea toward improving player safety. And the threats to football's existence receded. Schools like Harvard, whose president was a leader of the prohibition of football movement, abandoned the goal of canceling their football program. And the rules committee that changed the rules of football later became what we know today as the NCAA. They continued to tinker with the rules of football over time, making it more and more safe until the time came when a death in football was regarded as a freak accident. So did Teddy Roosevelt really save football? Roosevelt certainly made saving football from the prohibition of football movement a national issue. And without that, who knows how effective that movement might have become. Banning a very popular national sport seems unlikely, but banning the sale and manufacture of alcohol seems far more unlikely, and look where that ended up. Regardless, Coach Ted Venegas still ranks Roosevelt as his favorite president, especially when he is calling a pass play. Let's go Hero Vegas Sky on one. Set, hike. Quarterback drops back. He rolls right. The man down the middle. He sees him. Passes up. It's caught. Run for the touchdown. And that's why Teddy Roosevelt's my favorite president. And that pass couldn't happen without Teddy Roosevelt. So like I said, Teddy Roosevelt saved football. And great job on that. And that's John Elfner, and he's a U.S. history teacher at Homewood Flossmoor High School. And that's in the south suburbs of Chicago. And John's been teaching history for 20 years to high school students. And my dad was a lifer as a high school history teacher, basketball coach, ended up being a superintendent of schools. But his favorite thing to do was to be on the court with the boys or taking a road trip and seeing American action in history and making it come alive. So I'm grateful to a dad who I got to do that with, field trips to Gettysburg and Vicksburg and the rest. And by the way, that was John Miller's voice you heard, and he's a journalism teacher at Hillsdale College, which sponsors are this days in history. And by the way, football's ready for another big rule change. A lot of people think changing the zone defense will end all these brain injuries. We'll see if that happens, but it's the zone defense more than likely that's the cause of so many of these brain injuries. But what a story this is. The President of the United States intervening to save a game he thought 
prepared boys for war. Teddy Roosevelt story, football story, here on Our American Story. Jeff Daniels in the infamous toilet scene from the 1994 movie Dumb and Dumber. This is Our American Stories, and now we know you don't want to hear the most annoying sound in the world, so how about some behind-the-scenes stories about the comedy classic? Here's Greg Hengler with a story. Dumb and Dumber wasn't just a huge success, raking in almost a quarter billion dollars worldwide. It also marked the feature debut of writer-directors Peter and Bobby Farrelly, whose wildly funny There's Something About Mary even outgrossed Dumb and Dumber in 1998. But it all began with Harry and Lloyd. Here's Dumb and Dumber producer Charles Wessler. Uh, give or take 90, uh, 1990 or 91, uh... Bennett and Pete Fairley came into my office with holding a script in their hand called Dumb and Dumber. And they said, this is the funniest movie. We really love it. We really have a lot of confidence that it's going to be really great. And would you read it? And I took it home that night and I read it. And I remember I laughed out loud a lot. I like it a lot. Uh-oh. And of course I called them up and said, look, I, I really, really would like to be involved in this. It's okay! as a producer, and they said, great, let's try to do that together, and that set our, our sort of new relationship. And um, it just got turned down and turned down and turned down by every studio and every executive. I didn't even see it come. And we didn't get like, no, you know, thank you very much for submitting your script. Uh, it was a very interesting screenplay. I get calls from executives saying, what a piece of crap. You are one pathetic loser. Why would you send me this? No offense. <laughs> no, none taken. It's funny, like two years go by and we're, 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 we're all broke. I'm gonna go to the store. Yeah. Okay, just get the bare essentials. This is the last of our dough. In the meantime, while we're failing miserably, I had breakfast with Brad Cravoy about a completely separate issue. And Brad, I asked him what he was doing. He's, he was financing low-budget movies. Here's producers Brad Cravoy and Steven Stabler. I'll never ever forget reading the screenplay because it was the very first time I read something that made me want to piss in my pants. I was laughing so hard. 
So Brad brought the script back to the office. We all kind of looked at it, and I remember to this day that it was the funniest script that I ever read and the script that I laughed the most out loud as I was reading. So that night, midnight, I called up Charlie. I said, we got to meet. First thing tomorrow morning, come in. We're doing this movie. Charlie came in, and that's when I met Peter and Bobby Fairley for the first time. It's our big chance, man. <laughs> but during the meeting, Peter and Bobby Fairley started acting out the parts of Harry and Lloyd. And it was really funny. We guaranteed that we would make the movie for $2 million or less. And we started to cast the movie. We went to Steve Martin, he said no. We went to Martin Short, he said no. The film finally started to come together when we started to talk to New Line Cinema. How about a hug? And they, they had a really interesting attitude over there. Uh, Mike DeLuca kind of liked the script. Bob Shea did not like the script, but I guess they liked it enough that if they could get the right cast, they, they said they would make it. And we came up with a list of about 25 actors. And they said, if you can get two of these actors from this list of 25, we'll green light Dumb and Dumber. So you're telling me there's a chance. And uh, what we discovered was of the 25 odd actors on that list, not one said yes. New Line came back and said, look, we just finished shooting a movie called The Mask, and we love Jim Carrey. But Ace Ventura had not come out yet, so he was pretty much unknown at that point. But if you get Jim Carrey in this movie, we'll make it. We were told that we could close a deal with Jim Carrey for a million dollars any time up until the Friday that Ace Ventura opened. And in our brilliance, we didn't close that deal because he was only a TV star. Monday morning, we called up Jim Carrey's agent, and we said, okay, Let's get our contract on. Hold on, sugar. Daddy's got a sweet tooth tonight. And they said, well, we have a little, little problems on Friday. Now you have to ask yourself one question. I said, okay. Do I feel lucky? What's it going to take? Here's Wessler and Jeff Daniels. New Line, we said, finally, you know, get Jim Carrey. We got Jim Carrey. And then Pete said... Okay, I want Jeff Daniels for the other part. There was just something about it. I remember reading the script with this friend of mine, and I was going to go read for it. And uh, um, I said, is this, is this funny? And I told him about the tongue on the pole scene. Are you okay? Oh, yeah. I do, I do this all the time. And he goes, yeah, that, that's, that's funny. Snowball in the head. He, he goes, yeah, that's, that's funny. Sitting on a toilet. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Hmm. And they said... No, Jeff Daniels isn't funny. I mean, he's a good actor, but he's not funny. Ah! So I had three agents on the phone. Two out of three guys were going, this will ruin your career. This is the end of everything. We cannot recommend more strongly that you do not do this movie. Ah! And the guy in New York, Paul Martino, I've been with since for 27 years, and Paul was the only one who said, do the movie. It's funny. Shake it off, man. Ah! I'm gonna go back. One of the things they said was that Jim is gonna walk all over you. What? Ah! I'm going, okay, well, but what about the toilet scene? What about the tongue on the pole scene? What about the snowball in the head? He's not in those scenes. Ah! So even if he is that kind of guy, which I can react to, give me a little credit, um, there's the three scenes he's not even in. Put out the vibe. And then what Jim said was great. Jim said, this is a buddy-buddy movie, and I really want an actor across from me, somebody that I can react to and that will give and take. He really didn't want another comedian. 
who would just wait for Jim to finish and then try to top him. And we were reading the, uh, the hot tub scene. My hair was long, so I just kind of did this with the hair and, you know, just kind of, you know, did that. And Jim got this smile on his face. This is the life. Pete and Bobby fairly said, we knew before you guys even said a word. You know, Jim and I worked a little bit together, and, and I was, you know, I, I was having trouble getting a handle on it. How far have we gone? Jim kind of knew it and understood it. And According to this map, about an inch and a half. And how much farther we got to go? Eventually, I, I just, you know. Two feet. I just said, okay, what would it be like to have an IQ of nine? And we are going to need a smaller map, but we're never going to get there. And, you know, and so just to play the reality of that, which is all actor crap, but, you know, instead of trying to be dumb, why don't you just be that stupid? You know, so it just, I just, it literally it was, I would shake my head, you know, and, and like slosh my brain around before takes just to try to empty out any degree of intelligence that I may have had as a person. You don't comment on it, you aren't trying to be funny. You just are that stupid. Tic Tac, sir. Okay, it's a funny script, but then we're stuck with the Pete Fairley, Bob Fairley. Get the hell out of here. The idea was to just go ahead and shoot it. It's just they always, how far can we go? Where's the line? Let's cross it. The Fairley brothers are like that. They're this constant kind of searching for what's, would it be funnier if we came in having a sword fight? And then, hat, boom, boom, pops, you know, all that stuff. It just kept adding and adding and adding. We try to shoot the first two takes of any given setup script and then we'll say oh guys go crazy do whatever you want we got it and we know we got it in the can why don't you guys go ahead and do whatever the hell you want now, Jim Carrey is such a talented comedian and understands humor so perfectly that he gave up the best part in the screenplay so that Jeff Daniels could play it cool and that's the true spirit of a brilliant comedian whatever all the stuff that Jeff does is really funny. In fact, if you look at the movie, the fact is, I think he gets half the laughs. And Jim gets half the laughs. But it comes from a different place. When they finally got on the set, it was sort of perfect because they got along great. Thank you, my good man. There was no competition for who was going to be funnier or who was going to be, uh, who was going to get the, the, the goofy line. You know, when you're working with Jim, you've got so much to bounce off of and react to. and. He's such a gifted comedian. He's so smart. He's so precise. Want to hear the most annoying sound in the world? Somebody to react to that and bounce off of that. It was easy. I mean, he made it easy. It was all about whatever happens, keep going, because it could be great. Here's Stabler and actress Victoria Rowell. There's an old saying, a movie's never as good as its dailies or as bad as its first cut. But you get a feeling, and the feeling on the set as we were making Dumb and Dumber is that we were making something that was going to be really good and that we were going to be really proud of. Well, Dumb and Dumber is an anomaly. I mean, no one quite understands how such juvenile humor attracts the CEO of a corporation. And they're not ashamed to tell you that they love Dumb and Dumber. Clint Eastwood came up to me and said, that happened to him. That toilet scene, he was dating some girl, he really wanted to impress her, he'd eaten the wrong thing at lunch, he got to her house to pick her up for dinner or to go out or whatever, and he needed to find the bathroom now. And to have somebody like Clint, Clint's stature, tell you that story, and I guess 
it's nice to know that the movie connected with him as well. I knew we were on to something at least unique. I had no idea that it would be received and enjoyed by so many people so many years down the road. Um, and that's a great thing, you know. The last time I looked, the Greeks were holding up two masks. And comedy should be on an equal level with drama. It really should. And whether you're sitting on a toilet or, you know, doing Shakespeare, funny is funny. And great job, as always, to Greg Hengler. The making of Dumb and Dumber here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything. And one of the most intriguing stories that I've come across in a long time was captured by Brantley Hargrove, who's a journalist and has written for Wired, Popular Mechanics, and Texas Monthly. We talked with Brantley about his book, The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of the Legendary Tornado Chaser, Tim Samaras. Yeah, Tim was just this uh, middle-class kid from the suburbs of Denver. He grew up uh, in this little bungalow in Lakewood, Colorado. And, uh, you know, I mean, he was kind of an unusual kid in some ways. Um, you know, most kids are playing with, you know, action figures or whatever. He was uh, taking apart his parents' appliances. Uh, I mean, he, he, for some reason, he just really liked to take apart the blender or the television set uh, just to figure out what made them go. I mean, he just... He simply couldn't take for granted the fact that they actually worked. He had, he had this innate curiosity. Uh, and so, you know, his dad, just, just to keep, you know, keep him away from their appliances, uh, he actually went out into, the, out into the neighborhood, out into the, you know, the, sort of the outlying community, and uh, would pick up, like, these old radios, these big, you know, radios with the, the dials on them, and uh, he'd bring them back to Tim just to give him something to tinker with. And uh, Tim would... Uh, he'd, 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 sometimes he'd fix them. I mean, if they weren't working, so, I mean, he had this—he had this natural gift for uh, figuring out what was wrong with a piece of equipment, electronics, and uh, putting it back together again. Well, the, I love the title of chapter two: "A Boy with an Engineer's Mind." He also had an imagination too, and a movie really struck him. And maybe in the end, uh, this is Brantley what led him to his obsession with storm chasing. Talk about the Wizard of Oz. You know, where he's probably six years old, uh, Wizard of Oz was, was on prime time. It was a Sunday evening, and his parents drug the dining room table into the living room and served dinner in there. And uh, that's where Tim saw the Wizard of Oz for the first time. And, uh, I mean, he was, once that tornado started churning toward Dorothy and Toto, he was completely transfixed by the image on screen. He just couldn't believe it. Um, just this, this image of, of power. And, uh, you know, the, the rest of the film really didn't, didn't interest him all that much. He'd get kind of bored once they started hitting the yellow brick road. But, uh, you know, forevermore, he would be, he'd be drawn to that, that image. And, you know, he, he couldn't believe that there was, there were such things near his home and he wanted to, wanted to see one for himself someday. Yeah. And it's interesting. Colorado's where storms set up as they head into the great plains. Uh, talk about how that impacted him too, just where he lived, his, the geography and how that might've factored into things. Right. Well, yeah, he was, he's, he's in, he's in you know, near Denver. So it's, uh, he's got, 
he's got these storms coming up against the Rockies. Um, you know, these, these, these occasionally violent thunderstorms that are known to produce tornadoes. And so he was in a, he was in a, in a region, an environment, uh, where he could see such things. I mean, he did. He, you know, when he was, uh, he was a young kid, he saw his first, first funnel cloud in the sky. So, I mean, that, that, that sort of just ignited even further this fire that had first begun uh, with The Wizard of Oz. Indeed. Now, he's not your typical high school grad. A lot of kids go to college. But Tim, well, he starts knocking on the door of the Denver Research Institute, and they want him to get a resume together. And my goodness, your writing about this is fabulous. And it reminds me of the Wright Brothers, because David McCullough's book about the Wright Brothers, you know, here are all these PhDs and scientists trying to get up into, into the air, and these two bicycle mechanics are, well, they're, they're sort of playing around and goofing off uh, with their own wind tunnels that they created themselves, and then out in Kitty Hawk. Talk about that application, what chutzpah it took for a kid to try and get a job at one of the top research science facilities in America. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's, it's amazing, chutzpah. Uh, you know, he's, he's, he's walking into uh, the Denver Research Institute, which is a, an, applied, uh, an applied science outfit. They do all sorts of explosives work for the military. I mean, basically, these, these guys are just geeks who use really um, high-tech, research-grade electronics to study all sorts of violent forces, among other things. And so Tim walks in, you know, he's, he's, I think he's 20 or 21, uh, you know, walking in with uh, holes in his jeans and, and a T-shirt. And he doesn't even bring in his own resume. I mean, I don't think he'd ever drawn one up. Uh, and so you know, he gets talking to the guy who runs, runs the outfit, Larry Brown. And, um, you know, I mean, Larry Brown can see this, this guy is clearly conversant, um, but you know, maybe not even the most uh, qualified person uh, that he's talked to for this job. And so he's like, all right, Tim, well, you know, this is interesting, but why don't you come back with a resume? And so Tim does, and, uh, you know, it's this yellow sheet of paper onto which he's handwritten his, um, his, his expertise, which includes working uh, at a mom-and-pop radio repair shop. So, I mean, it's not a whole lot there. But, yeah, I mean, Larry goes with his gut. He likes Tim. He, he sees that Tim has a natural ability, and he seems pretty cool, too. So he's like, all right, I'm going to give this kid a chance, and he does. And, uh, you know, I mean, but it, by the time Tim is, uh, you know, 20 years old, he's, he's got a, a Pentagon security clearance. It's amazing. Nope. It's amazing. By the nope. way, no college education, no college education, but a guy like Brown who trusted his gut instincts. I mean, you got to you got to give him credit. A lot of people would have said no paper, no credentials, no job. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Brown Brown saw something in Tim that was, I think, harder to quantify. Indeed. I love the chapter's title, This Love Affair with the Sky. Because in the end, this is what happens with Tim. You write, quote, he begins to tackle tornadoes in the methodical way he does everything else. He studies them, figures out how they work, just as he did many years before with his mom's blender. Self-taught all the way, wasn't this man? Yeah, he completely was. I mean, this is, this is sort of a pattern that's been set up since he was a, a kid. You know, he's like, this interests me. I'm going to figure out everything I can about it. Uh, largely by myself. And that's what he did. I mean, you know, it, it, except for, uh, you know, I think this is probably the first time he ever actually enjoyed sitting in a classroom. He did take a storm spotting course and, you know, some basic meteorology through uh, Skywarn, which uh, partners with the National Weather Service. But by, by and large, he was, you know, he was teaching himself. He was reading, you know, everything he could and, uh, you know, trying to figure out, okay, how do I go out myself and find these storms, and, and how can I make myself of use to the National Weather Service? I mean, he was also one of their spotters, so 
he'd be the guy out there giving them the on the ground intelligence about what actually is happening because you know uh, uh, radar can tell us that there is a a storm that you know has some evidence of tornadic rotation but it can't necessarily tell you the tornadoes on the ground and tim would be the guy who'd be out there in the field with eyes on the storm telling them you know in fact there is a tornado or there isn't one when we return more with brantley hargrove who's written so beautifully about the life and death of storm chaser Tim Samaras. This is Our American Stories. Hargrove, author of The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of Legendary Tornado Chaser, Tim Samaras. We were talking about the virtually non-existent state of tornado science leading up to the time when Samaras and a small band of researchers started looking at this force of nature. Tornadoes were so inexplicable, um, so poorly understood, that, uh, you know, uh, atmospheric scientists, uh, meteorologists, you know, the government was just like, hey, look, let's, let's, we can't even bother with trying to predict these things. There's no point in warning people about the possibility of tornadoes if we have really no ability to uh, predict where they're going to occur and when with any kind of specificity. And so, uh, yeah, you know, with the, uh, you know, the signal services, the Army signal services, which is, you know, initially in charge of, uh, you know, national weather forecasting, and then the Weather Bureau, I mean, it was just, it, it, was, it was the word you didn't really utter. And so, I mean, we didn't even really start making, uh, you know, any kinds of tornado forecasts until, you know, into the 1950s. I mean, it's kind of remarkable when you think about it. We just, we just did not understand them well enough to predict them. Um, and so, you know, up through, up through uh, you know, whenever Tim kind of arrives on the scene and, and begins his own research, uh, you know, we, we'd come a long way, but there were still, you know, there were still a lot of, of unanswered questions. I mean, we had just developed in the 70s, you know, the 60s and 70s, Doppler radar. And then mobile Doppler didn't even come onto the scene until uh, the 90s, which would allow us to scan at, you know, somewhat close range uh, these tornadoes in, in detail. And so we, were ju- we just had this really essential tool come on the scene. Uh, and, we're, and we're, you know, we're learning quite a bit. However, I mean, there, the mobile radar, even, even when you can drag it out into close proximity with the storm, it, it, it left some blind spots. Uh, it couldn't scan in that lowest, you know, 50 meters or so. Uh, and that's a, that's a pretty, crucial, uh, pretty crucial spot. I mean, that's where, you know, that, that's where these winds, um, you know, it's where they begin to coalesce. I mean, you know, how can you, how can you predict them if you can't understand how the low-level environment is, is connected to the broader storm environment? And so that was kind of one place that where Tim was hoping he could fill in the blanks was that this low level vi- environment that you know was essentially terra incognita we knew nothing about it we had no we had no data no measurements from it the chapter the spark there's a man who named Frank Tatum uh, from Huntsville Alabama and people may not know this about Huntsville but it's one of the great science research uh, spots in the whole country uh, talk about the role that Frank played in young Tim's life. Yeah, Frank was was the spark, in my opinion. Um, 
you know, he was, uh, he was this, um, explosives expert, um, uh, in there in Huntsville. And, you know, back in 89, Huntsville got hit by a, a really violent tornado. You know, it, it killed, uh, I think a couple dozen people. And, uh, you know, in the aftermath, he heard a lot of weird things that sort of struck him, uh, and, and were in some ways, you know, uh, they related to his, his own research. You know, he was hearing that there were all these people who were, uh, you know, they were feeling these tremors through the ground as the tornado approached. Uh, and I mean, these weren't yahoos who were saying this. this was like the emergency manager. It was like a preacher who was in the basement sheltering with, you know, some people from his congregation were saying, yeah, I felt these, I felt these tremors coming through the ground. And so he's like, okay, I mean, could a tornado measurably transfer energy into the ground to the extent that you know, you'd actually create some kind of shockwave? And uh, what he found, you know, whenever he went to a, a USGS, um, you know, geological service uh, uh, site where they had some, um, you know, they had some geophones in the ground, you know, he found out that they actually did. There were actually seismic signals being created by these tornadoes. And so he set out to uh, uh, build this device um, with federal funding. Uh, that he hoped would be, uh, you know, serve as an early warning network. He would he would use it to detect seismic signals uh, of tornadoes, uh, you know, and, and, and to give you know maybe a little bit better of a, an advance heads up. Uh, and so he, he he built these devices, but you know, Frank was not a storm chaser. He didn't really know how to go find tornadoes and you know put these you know somewhere near the path so that they could you know either pick up or not pick up on these uh, these seismic signals. And so he he started reaching out to all these storm chasers that he'd heard about throughout the U.S. And Tim's was one of those names who came up as, you know, kind of one of these prominent sort of legendary storm chasers. Yep. And Tatum asked him from your book, quote, can you get my invention close to a tornado? Can you help me find out if it actually works? That's quite a thing to ask a guy, isn't it? <laughs> well, I mean, if, if he knew Tim, he would know that was a question. It was almost as if he'd been waiting his whole life to be asked. I mean, you know, Tim had been, he'd seen this, uh, this Nova documentary on PBS uh, a few, you know, a decade before, I think, um, where, these, uh, where these scientists from the National Severe Storm Laboratories and Oklahoma University were, were, you know, going out chasing down these tornadoes with this, you know, with this instrument that they developed um, called the Totable Tornado Observatory. They were trying to deploy this instrument to get these, these, these long-sought-after measurements from the core of a tornado. And they weren't successful, but I mean, Tim had been captivated by this by this documentary, by the, you know this idea of these scientists going out and chasing tornadoes down. And so, what Tatum was offering him was a mission that sounded a whole lot like what these scientists had done. And so, I mean, he couldn't say no. Tim is not happy with the the, the probes that have been created. So, in the end, he creates this thing himself called the Turtle Probe. Talk about the Turtle Probe, Tim's invention. Right. Well, the turtle probe was um, uh, quite different from everything that had preceded it. Um, you know, a lot of the previous inventions, uh, you know, none of which managed to get into the core of a tornado, you know, not a lot of attention was paid to, uh, you know, the, the aerodynamic profile. And, you know, up to that point, it hadn't mattered because they hadn't gotten into a place where that would, where that would be of, of utmost importance. And Tim did pay a great deal of attention to its aerodynamic profile. He, he, he conceived this device whose, whose, whose profile was inspired actually by a previous, um, a previous instrument that had been devised by, you know, another guy at uh, Applied Research Associates, where he was now working. Uh, it was an intercontinental ballistic missile launch vehicle that was supposed to be able to withstand a nuclear shock wave. And what Tim did is he, he took those plans 
and he, he scaled down and adapted uh, to, his, to, to his use. Uh, so he built this thing that, you know, okay, if it can survive a nuclear shockwave, uh, surely it'll be okay in a tornado. And so he, he built this device. It's about, you know, 20 inches across, about six inches tall, you know, sort of conical in shape, kind of like a, like a, a Vietnamese, uh, a traditional Vietnamese hat. Uh, and it was filled with, um, you know, pressure transducers, sensors for temperature and humidity, and this and a data logger that were core measurements from all these sensors, uh, ten times per second. And it was, it was, you know, it was to that point, it was uh, one of the most aerodynamically and just, you know, in terms of the instrumentation, the most advanced uh, in situ probe that had ever been devised. And the problem now is, as you put it in the book, the easy part was making the device which, by the way, is not easy. But the hard part is getting a, a tornado to go over that device. That's no duck walk, and that's dangerous work. Uh, talk about uh, Tim's attitude about that. Again, he was no daredevil, but he knew to get this probe placed in the right places meant taking bigger and more profound risks with his life. Sure. Well, you know, finding tornadoes to begin with is, is, is difficult. Uh, you know, Tim, Tim was well, well acquainted with that struggle. I mean, you know, you, for every, every tornado you see, you strike out on probably at least five other, uh, events. Um, so yeah, first of all, he's dealing with that, just the difficulty in finding these things. Uh, then there's the difficulty if you do of maneuvering ahead of them. So you've got to position yourself in such a way that you'll be able to stay, you know, probably roughly to the north and slightly ahead of the tornadoes. It's moving uh, to be able to drop down front and intercept. Uh, so, you know, to add to all this, uh, he also knew that if he's going to deploy this thing into the core, he's going to have to get in front of the tornado. I mean, it, it, even more, even in a more extreme position than he'd been in uh, with Frank Tatum's uh, instrument, he's going to have to wait until the tornado is really close because tornadoes they swerve i mean they, they don't they don't travel in a straight line there are all sorts of little bobs and weaves in their tracks and so that means he has to get really really close probably closer than anybody has really ever gotten um and survived uh to deploy this thing this mission that he's taken on is uh is far more dangerous than anything he's ever done and when we come back, we're going to continue with this remarkable story of Tim Samaras, as told by Brantley Hargrove. And the book is called The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of Legendary Tornado Chaser Tim Samaras. And I would urge you to go to the bookstore, pick this up, or just get it off Amazon. And again, it's The Man Who Caught the Storm. And what a writer and what a passion Brantley has for this subject. He himself, a storm chaser. And he himself, deeply captivated by this magic that Mother Nature creates. When we continue, we return with the life of Tim Samaras, his story, here on Our American Story.
And we're back with Brantley Hargrove, author of The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of Legendary Tornado Chaser, Tim Samaris. At this point, people were beginning to become skeptical of Tim's mission because he kept getting near misses, like what happened in Stratford, Texas, for example. He'd been trying to deploy on several tornadoes, um, you know, the year before, and got really close. And I think he was learning more and more just how close he needed to be uh, to pull this off. And so in Stratford, Texas in 2003, um, you know, there were, there were all sorts of risks that he was courting that day. I mean, as he maneuvered in front of this, uh, uh, this, to- uh, this oncoming tornado in uh, the Texas Panhandle, um, I mean, there was, there was baseball-sized hail coming down. I mean, he could, have, he could easily have been uh, brained by a baseball-sized chunk of hail. I mean, that, that stuff's fatal. Uh, so he, you know, he jumps out of his minivan uh, with his, uh, you know, he's got his partner in there uh, filming for the scientific record. And there's this tornado in the distance, you know, clearly approaching. It's kind of this sort of multiple vortex circulation uh, moving in at about, you know, probably 30 miles per hour. And so Tim, uh, you know, he, he drops his, his probe. Uh, you know, they're, they're starting to be able to hear the roar of the tornado. He jumps back in the minivan and they take off and they get overtaken by the, um, you know, the rain curtains and the outer circulation. And they're getting battered by some pretty intense winds. I mean, winds, you know, approaching 100 miles per hour at least. And, I mean, they've got, they've got telephone poles bending into the road, and some are falling into the road. He's having to swerve into the oncoming lane of traffic. You know, fortunately, there's nobody out there just to steer clear of these telephone poles. And this is, I think this is the first time at least, you know, that I've heard, and I've watched a bunch of Tim's uh, storm-chasing footage. This is the first time I really heard true fear in his voice. And I think he felt at that moment like he had pushed it way too far and that, you know, they were going to pay the consequences. And I mean, he was he, was, he managed to get out, but uh, it was uh, it was a really close brush. Let's fast forward to Manchester, South Dakota, because this day, June 24, 2003, changes Tim's life and it changes meteorology and storm science. Talk about that day. Yeah, this was uh, this was a day that started out with a lot of frustration. I mean, you know, by this point, Tim has been out on the road for several years uh, trying to deploy on these tornadoes with, um, you know, limited success. You know, he's gotten close, but he hasn't gotten that singular uh, deployment that he's been shooting for. And so, you know, he, he gets onto a, a, a tornado in um, a, near Woonsocket, South Dakota, and the, and the dang thing, it keeps to the fields the whole time. Tim can't deploy on a tornado in the fields. He needs it to cross a navigable road. And this thing, you know, it, it dies right before it gets to the first navigable road he could possibly deploy on. So he's, you know, he's pretty dispirited. Um, you know, it, it, it's June uh, 24th, I believe. And, you know, he's getting towards the end of the season. Uh, you know, this is, this is very late in tornado season, you know, after this. Uh, it looks like there's going to be a high-pressure ridge. It's going to deplete all the storm potential after that. Um, but as he's collecting his probes, you know, this, this, this guy who's with him notices um, this, this splash of golden uh, sunlight uh, refracting off of the backside of a storm to the east. And, you know, Tim jumps into the minivan and sees that there's a pretty vigorous radar signature um, within that storm. You know, there's a, there's a hook echo. This could very well be... Uh, an ongoing tornado. So he gathers up his probes as quickly as he can and then lights out down the highway east toward the storm. And uh, as he approaches, uh, he sees that there is an enormous tornado on the horizon. I mean, in in my opinion, this is probably the biggest uh, and most violent tornado he's ever he's ever actually encountered. 
this is this is the shot he's been waiting for really his whole life. Um, and his, his, the partner's with him. It's his uh, his brother-in-law, Pat Porter. Is you know he actually he actually asked, are, are we going to deploy on that thing? And Tim's like, damn right. Uh, and so he approaches this thing down the highway, and it's, it's it's closing in on the highway, and he realizes that uh, that his you know his approach is all wrong. He can't deploy here. He can't accurately gauge its forward speed, um, its, its its trajectory. Uh, trying to get on that highway in front of that tornado would be almost suicide. So he kind of pauses for a second, uh, then realizes that he's got you know to the north, and this thing's moving off to the northeast. To the north, there's a, a good grid of uh, dirt roads and he doesn't you know it's not optimal to be on dirt roads because dirt roads get wet and then they get bogged down but he's going to give it a shot so he figures if he heads north on this dirt road uh and can take the next east dirt road that he can head the tornado off drop his probe and then head north as the tornado moves off to the northeast so basically he's racing the tornado to this intersection you know a mile or so ahead uh, and so he, he he takes off, and it's it's a hairy ride. I mean the 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 road just turns to cake batter. They're fishtailing, um, and you know at various points they lose sight of the tornado in the rain. I mean it's it's chewing through farmhouses. There's debris drifting everywhere, um, but he gets to this place in the road. Uh, you know at this intersection, drops his probe and and hauls as fast as he can, and. Uh, the tornado runs over his probe. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a huge moment in, in, in the world of atmospheric science. You know, the first time, uh, we had direct measurements from the core of a violent tornado. I mean, that was just something that, uh, the research community wasn't sure that they would ever actually have. And it was this guy, this sort of lone guy. I mean, there were many times people tried to partner in with Tim, but they were going to try and tell him how to do it. And he, he had quite a number of failures in this regard, Brantley. But in the end, he had to do it his way, and he had to rely on his gut and his intuition. He laid that probe down 82 seconds before the tornado struck. That's crazy. But he managed to register the steepest drop in barometric pressure ever recorded, which got him a mention in the Guinness Book of World Records, Brantley. And obviously, it changed his life. Oh, yeah. I mean, this was... This was his name was on the lips of uh, every uh, atmospheric scientist uh, in the world today. I mean, that was a huge moment. And I, you know, it brought him, it brought him a certain amount of fame. I mean, the guy was on, uh, you know, he, he was on the cover of National Geographic. Uh, he was on CNN with Soledad O'Brien. He went on Oprah. I mean, Tim was, uh, you know, this was, this was a big moment. And Tim, uh, his life changed profoundly after that. Let's talk about his son, Paul, because ultimately he would join Tim in this life. Uh, talk about the, the relationship between father and son in the book. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think at first, um, you know, the relationship between Tim and Paul was kind of like any father and son relationship in their teen years. I mean, I, I don't think they were incredibly close uh, early on. You know, I mean, I think it was just kind of the way it goes. Uh, Paul was, you know, sort of an, an introverted young man um, uh, who, uh, you know, wasn't sure exactly what he wanted to do with his life. Um, you know, once he graduated from high school, he sort of drifted to a couple of different options, but you know, just none of it seemed to stick. Uh, you know, and then he started going out and chasing with Tim. And I think that changed a lot of things for Paul, both personally and, you know, with his relationship with his father. I think it brought them closer together in a way they hadn't been before. And I think for Paul, he found a sort of purpose. You know, he, he discovered uh, photography. And, you know, I mean, as it turned out, you know, this, this guy, this young man had an incredible eye. I mean, he was just 
unnatural, uh, both with a camera and with a video camera. And so, you know, uh, Paul starts going, uh, you know, out every season with Tim and the crew, you know, and sometimes he'll ride in, in one of the, uh, you know, one of the other cars, you know, if there's, if there isn't room in Tim's truck, but, uh, you know, he, he finds this community and this camaraderie with his father and this group of, uh, chasers and researchers that Tim travels with. Uh, and I think it was, you know, I think it was, I think it was the path Paul had been looking for. And when you get a chance, take a look at some of the photography of Paul Samaras. It's remarkable. I mean, some of the landscapes and some of the nature shots that he captures, especially in the depths of these storms, the lightning, the cloud formations, it's just poetry. He had a gift, no doubt. And when we return, the final episode, the final chapter in this harrowing story, we return with the story of Tim Samaras, as told by Brantley Hargrove, the book the man who caught the storm, the life of legendary tornado chaser Tim Samaras. More of this remarkable story here on Our American Stories. Turn with Brantley Hargrove, the author of The Man Who Caught the Storm, the life of legendary tornado chaser Tim Samaras. And Tim's goal was to get the typical tornado warning time up from about 17 minutes to a full 30 minutes. That was about 13 extra minutes, which of course could mean a lot of saved lives. Yeah, I mean, Tim, what, what he was hoping, I think, was that his data his data, and not only his data, but the, the data produced by his team. You know, he had this, he had these other uh, researchers with him who surrounded the tornado with these sedan-mounted sensors. So they would sample the environment feeding the tornado. Basically, what, you know, what, what in the environment is making this tornado uh, form? What's making it intensify? What's making it unravel? And so what I think he was hoping was that his data paired with these, uh, these other researchers' data uh, could give us a better understanding of what sorts of mechanisms and processes uh, are in the environment that lead to these really strong tornadoes. Uh, and, 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 and some days, whenever those tornadoes don't form, what are, what are some of the mechanisms that are failing to fall into place? And so I think he was hopeful that his research could help identify something in the atmosphere on these really bad days, you know, these, these days like, you know, in 2011 with the Dixie Alley outbreak or, you know, uh, Moore, Oklahoma, 2013. What's, what is it in the sky on these days that, um, you know, makes these tornadoes uh, be so, you know, so intense and have such long tracks. Uh, and that's what his, uh, his research group was out there to try to figure out. Let's talk about El Reno, Oklahoma. And by the way, just not too long before El Reno, more Oklahoma tornado, which you just mentioned, came through. It was an EF5. And Samaras, well, he thought it was too dangerous a storm to chase. Again, getting at that idea that he was not a reckless man. Let's talk about El Reno, Oklahoma, 
and and that final day of Tim and Paul's life? Well, at that point um, in 2013, Tim was a part of a um, a, uh, a lightning research project uh, funded by uh, DARPA, you know, this federal agency, uh, and they were you know essentially just out there with this uh, with this box van that Tim had built. Um, that had all sorts of crazy cameras in it. I mean, super high-speed cameras. You know, even one camera that could take up to a million frames per second of video. And they were hoping to understand, you know, some of these fundamental mysteries of lightning um, and, and some of the other electromagnetic phenomena that accompany lightning. And so that was their main mission at that point. You know, they, but they had also brought along um, a, a sedan uh, for, for side chases. So on that day, uh, on May 31st, 2013, they knew that there was going to be a big storm. They were supposed to be set up somewhere far to the north of that storm to be able to photograph the lightning. The best place to photograph lightning isn't right up close to the storm. It's, it's way further to the north. Um, but as, the, as, as, the, as, as the, the shape of the day kind of came into sharper focus, as they began to see just how, how powerful this event could be, they, I think they decided, you know, hey, we can't, we can't pass this up. We've got to go. We've got to go chase this. And they probably planned on coming back and, and, and photographing lightning later that evening, um, but it didn't work out that way. So they left their they left their 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 lightning um, their lightning photography vehicle uh, in northern Oklahoma, and they drove south uh, to, towards Oklahoma City in the central Oklahoma area where where the storm was forecast to begin, and uh, they set up. Um, you know, just as the as on the southern cell of the storm system, just as it was beginning to intensify, they were in perfect position. Awesome. Brantley, I want to play for you Tim Samaris on MSNBC on the morning of May 31st, 2013. And this would be, well, a tragic and terrible day for the Samaris family. He called in not to the Weather Channel on this particular hit. It was a news channel, an all-day news channel, MSNBC. Let's take a listen to his final appearance on national television. Right now, the uh, skies are fairly clear. We do not have storm initiation, but we fully expect storm initiation probably within the next two to three hours. And, uh, boy, the ingredients are coming together for a pretty volatile day. Tim, what are you watching for? What are you chasing right now? Well, at the moment, we are looking for the very special type of storm called a supercell. A supercell is a very violent uh, storm that is very capable of large hail and pretty destructive tornadoes. And so we're looking for the formation of these particular thunderstorms right now, especially in, in central Oklahoma, even along I-40 is kind of where we're currently targeting. Well, and this is... This is true. It turned into a monster, this storm, 2.5 miles wide, infested with other small tornadoes inside it. Talk about the miscalculations and mistakes Tim might have made here, Brantley, or were they even mistakes at all? And this was a mon- it turned into a monster. I mean, 2.5 miles wide. At, at its- and the thing about this tornado, miles per hour. Talk about the miscalculations or the, the mistakes that Tim may have made, um, and were they even mistakes in the end? Uh, yeah, I mean, th- that's a tricky question. I think they were mistakes. Um, so, Tim, you know, I mean, they, they went out after the storm as they usually would any, any tornado. I mean, they were, they were in perfect position to intercept the storm, but it wasn't a regular storm. It was moving to the southeast, uh, you know, to the east, 
uh, you know, I mean, it was, it was sort of all over the place, and they were struggling to keep up with it. And, and what was worse is that, you know, for a large part of their chase, um, this monster tornado was rain-wrapped. Um, it was completely obscured by rain. They couldn't see what it was doing. Uh, they couldn't see how explosively it was growing and how quickly it was beginning to move. Um, and there were just a lot of things that went wrong along the way, you know, as they were trying to, you know, get in closer to this tornado. You know, at one point, uh, they actually they thought they were going to be able to take a, an east turn that would prevent them from having to drive too close to the tornado. But that turn ended up being a dead end. So they had to go even farther south toward this tornado and actually ended up um, traveling into uh, the, the outer circulation, into the debris core of this tornado, actually getting hit by some debris. They had to drive then north out of there and then continue along east to try to get ahead of this tornado. And so they were losing ground all the while. Um, and then eventually, you know, after they crossed uh, U.S. Highway 81, that was kind of was sort of one of their last chances to, um, you know, to get out of the way of this thing. But they kept going because they couldn't see what was happening. I mean, they, they, they could not see the tornado. And they didn't realize by this point that it was, you know, it, it was moving, you know, the, the, the tornado, the larger tornado itself was moving at highway speeds. And it was starting to hook to the north. Uh, and that it had this um, this sub-vortex, this tornado within the tornado that, uh, you know, contained some really, really powerful winds. Uh, I mean, they, were, they later found winds in this tornado, you know, well in excess of 300 miles per hour. Uh, and so they couldn't see this thing whenever it, whenever it ran them over. Uh, they didn't know that they needed to either stop or turn north to get out of the way. And, uh, you know, I mean, when this, when this sub-vortex came out of the, uh, it would have come out of the east, I mean, it, just, it was the last place where they would have thought a tornado would come at them from. But uh, it, caught them, it caught them off guard. They, just, they came up against the wrong tornado at the wrong time in the wrong place. Indeed. I'm going to read from the book. And, folks, pick up the book, The Man Who Caught the Storm. It's terrific. Once you start it, you can't put it down. It reads like almost a police procedural. A plot just hurdles along to this really tragic end. In all of these years, Tim has learned to see the ticks and patterns of the vortex. His probes aren't all that have entered the unknown, glimpsing places no one alive had ever seen before. Tim has as well. And at these moments of extremity, it has always been his talent to see when the door is closing. He has always been able to find the seam and to slip through to safety. But this time, it's too late. This is the tornado he can't outrun. Very harrowing. Let's talk about what the finding was, because, my goodness, the Chevy Cobalt that he was in was really tossed almost a half a mile away, and a man named Sergeant Doug Girton of the Canadian County Sheriff's Office discovered a car sitting in a field after that tornado had passed. What did he discover, Brantley? Right, well, he, uh, you know, he was, as he was you know, traveling, traveling along this dirt road uh, looking for, you know, Injured people, you know, whatever he could find, you uh, saw this glint of white out in a out in a canola field, and you know, when he went to investigate further. It was, you know, it was a sedan, but it was it was just mangled. You know, it looked like, um, uh, you know, it looked like it'd been stripped down basically to the chassis. Um, and uh, you know, he found he found Tim inside, um, and uh, you know, didn't realize at first you know, who this guy was, but it kind of seemed like he might be a storm chaser. There was some kind of gear that was in the car that was synonymous with storm chasers. And when he finally pulled Tim's wallet, you know, out of his back pocket and, and saw the name, you know, he finally, you know, realized, you know, who he was, 
who he was looking at because Tim, you know, Doug Gurton had seen uh, uh, Storm Chasers on Discovery Channel before, and so you know, from that moment on, he 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 did all this business with Dispatch through his cell phone because you know he worried that you know if people listening to a scanner picked this up, they would you know they would converge on his location. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was you know when he found Tim, you know that was officially the first moment that you know. Uh, storm chasers had ever been killed in a tornado, as hard as that is to believe. And I want to thank Brantley Hargrove, who you've been listening to for this entire story, and his book, The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of Legendary Tornado Chaser Tim Samaras, is just a remarkable read. Buy it for you and the family. It is not a sad story. Tim died doing what he wanted to do. By the way, his son died too, 25 years old. And the wife wrote this spectacular letter honoring Tim's life and all the work that all these men and women do to protect us and help save lives. And we're going to listen to Tim as we go out talking about the thing he loved to do most, his life story here on Our American Stories. You know, I've been doing this for 20 years. I enjoy the hell out of it. I really do. Out here watching the the great clouds, the great storms, you never know exactly what you're going to find. 